One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Parented. We pride ourselves on looking at parenting from all perspectives and today's is an unusual one. Holly Branson is an author, businesswoman, philanthropist and mother of two, soon to be three. Her latest book, Weekonomy, talks about how good, fair, philanthropic business practice will imbue your workforce with a sense of purpose that will, in the long term, benefit your business. Holly, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Your book is written with candid honesty about your childhood and your adolescence and and also how you found yourself working alongside your father Richard Branson and and I think what I I loved about the sort of introductory part is that you're a very successful and um, you know achieved incredible things and yet you talk very candidly about how you really wanted to be a mum and when uh, your your co-author interviewed you he said what's your biggest ambition and you said I really want to be a mum. And that's that's quite an un-21st century answer. It's kind of not what we teach, our, or we're told to teach our children about sort of feminism. But mm. I, I did love your honesty there. Yeah, so I think with with that, it was a question in a moment where Freddie and I were really struggling to have kids. And so his actual, his question was about legacy. And we'd had two years of trying for children naturally two miscarriages and actually at that moment I I just had a miscarriage and so all I could think in my head was you know I'd actually at the moment I don't mind about the business stuff that's all going well for me like Mm -hmm. every other aspect of life was I'd been lucky in life things had gone well for me and I'd suddenly lost control of an area and so it was the, the the only thing that was in my head was my legacy I wanted to be children um so it was it was tough and it was um quite difficult to open up to a special a guy in especially one who we were writing a business book together Mm. um but it was the utmost honest answer um so and did you find it easier once you had opened up did you feel that that was a sort of weight off your shoulders was it good did it feel good to open up it did feel good to open up so I, I toed and froed about how honest to be in the personal chapters of the book, well, the, fir- the first chapter. But I felt that it was my first book I'd ever written and for people to know who I was as a person, I had to be as open as possible. Um, and that was very much me in that moment where Freddie and I, you know, had achieved great things in life through um, you know, our work. But personally, we were struggling with having children. Um, and actually, looking back on it, I'm so glad I opened up because when I was struggling and I read things in magazines and newspapers of other people that were going through it too, it really helped me that I wasn't alone because mm. I was quite alone within my group of friends. Everyone seemed to be getting pregnant very quickly and um, naturally. And 
Um, so it's it's always nice to know that you're not the only one. And it's difficult because you obviously don't wish, you know, struggle to conceive on anyone else, but it can feel really lonely. Mm. And I think tough times are made easier by comrades in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And now I am very much the go-to person for anyone who's having issues. I'm open-armed and like all my friends say, oh, do you mind if my friend calls you because you know, they've tried for a year or they've had a few failed rounds of IVF? And I like, absolutely give them my number. I'm here for anyone that needs some advice because um, I've been through it. And, yeah. and there aren't that many people out there. Um, well, sorry, there probably are people out there, but there aren't that many people who are very open mm. about it. Yeah. And you sort of... It's, it's ridiculous because you sort of almost regard it as something that's a failure. Failure to conceive is, mm. uh, you know, it sounds so negative and yet it's not anything you've done wrong. It's not like you didn't score well enough in your exams. It's just something biological that you really have very little control over. Mm. So why should there be this shame surrounding in, in, you know, infertility? Mm. Yes, I wish I'd opened up about it earlier. Because even to my own friends, if people after we got married would say, oh, you're trying for a baby yet? It took me a good 10 months to a year to start saying to people, do you know what, actually, we are and it's not happening. Um, It's the hardest question. It's the one that everyone asks you once you get married. So when are you going to start trying for a baby? Um, Do you specifically not ask that question? Yeah, I don't ask that question at all. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember because the first time my first pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. And I remember getting a bit annoyed when people say, you can have a baby soon. I say, oh, I actually had a miscarriage. And that would often sort of, make them sit back and think, you know, it's a really personal question. It's basically saying, are you having lots of sex? Mm. Um, I mean, you wouldn't ask that to, you know, to, <laughs> to most people. So, so it's extraordinary. Well, I really admire you for opening up. Um, um, one other thing that uh, really struck me um, about when you talk about your childhood is um, how the, the fact that your father, Richard Branson, would go and do these crazy trips around the world. So he hot air ballooned around the world, didn't he? He, he was he trying did. to be he, the first he, he person. Attempted to. He attempted to. Yeah, so he was attempted to be the, the first person to have, have you know, crossed the, gone around the globe uh, in a, in a hot, hot air balloon. Yeah, so he initially... Broke the world record for the Atlantic crossing, first person to cross the Atlantic. Then broke the world record for the first person to cross the Pacific. Um, And then attempted the around the world. I think it was something like five times. Um, But unfortunately got beaten in the last minute um, by another team. And how did you feel about all of this? I mean, because obviously there's, as as a child of a parent who has these ambitions, you know, A, they're not there, but B, they're risking their lives. Do you remember how you felt about it at the time? So for the first few ones, my mum was amazing and completely kept us out of the loop. Um, she, we didn't even go and see him off. We were probably under 10. Um, and she, she was very much the rock um, that just sort of kept our home life as normal as possible. For the later ones, for the around the world ones, we were older. We were 11 to 16 for all the attempts and we would go and see him. And I remember, I just remember my brother and I coping differently. I was much more of a don't show my emotions, but I would not leave my dad's side for the four days before he would set off. Whereas my brother was a bit more open with it, wears his heart on his sleeve. And, I, and I've just got this vision of one of the pictures taken of literally the moment dad was taking off Sam just in floods of tears. Um, so yeah, was it definitely tough, 
but I think easier than it would have been if it was now because there's no social media back then Mm. so when my mum was trying to protect us she really did protect us we were Mm. under 10 we weren't reading the newspaper or watching the news so we sort of didn't see all the things that were going on around it whereas nowadays I think it'd be much harder to keep your kids away from it and did you did you ever discuss the risks were you aware of I mean it's a dangerous thing circumnavigating the globe in a hot air balloon we didn't discuss the risks and I'm not sure whether that's the right thing or not actually looking back we probably should have sat down as a family and been a bit more open with our emotions to maybe deal with it better we were very much sort of stiff off a lip although that we're not a family that's a stiff off a lip family but it was very much just everything's going to be okay um and if it's yeah everything's going to be okay until a few years later when I read my dad's autobiography and I saw on the first page was a letter he'd written to us in case he didn't come back and that's when I the first time I ever cried about the trips because I suddenly had the realization of you know things couldn't might not have been okay yeah because obviously I had that very conversation with Ben he went to climb Everest this year and listen I think parenting has changed a lot in this century and I think we are probably a bit more aware of the emotional side of ourselves and how important it is to nurture them but I I really struggled with how honest am I with the children you know what do I tell them and in the end Ben and I both felt that we did owe it to be honest with them and say listen there are risks because I remember overhearing a conversation one of Ludo's friends said your daddy's climbing Everest that means he'll definitely die and I was like and then Ludo went no no he definitely won't die and I was like okay well both of you are wrong here and Mm. and I took Ludo aside and I did have that conversation with him and I think I think it was probably a good thing to do because it meant that he knew I'd answer his 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 questions honestly and that also meant that I could control his anxiety mm-hmm. because he trusted me. Yeah. And he could be open with you if he was feeling sad or worried or. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever been tempted to follow in your father's footsteps and do something that's a big challenge like that? Absolutely. I've definitely got the adventurous gene. Uh, um, so a few years ago, I climbed Mont Blanc uh, to launch our charity Big Change. I've attempted to cross the Atlantic on a sailboat um, to break the world record for the fastest sailboat crossing. That was the scariest thing I've ever done. Was this uh, a, since having the, your children? None of these things have been since having children. So it just timings haven't worked out for me to do. So my whole family just climbed up Mont Blanc again um, in September, but because I'm pregnant, I couldn't do it. Uh, so I haven't had to make these big decisions of like, am I going to put myself in this? in this situation now I've had kids I have done lots of adventures but not ones that are life-threatening I've cycled the length of Italy um, and And do you feel that potentially your outlook has changed since you're a mother you know thinking about some of the more risky ones would you I I do think I would weigh them up I'd think a lot more and I'd have to weigh it up a lot more at the age of the kids are now if something happened to me they probably wouldn't remember me and I think that would really stopped me wanting to take that risk I I'd have to I have to see if the opportunity came about but but I, I think deep down I, I know my answer would be no and did you ever resent your father taking these risks I didn't did you admire him y- yeah I did I admired him I, I honestly think I had the utmost belief that he was going to be fine um, looking back now I just actually had the opportunity to 
quiz him because I quest- I did a meet the author with my dad where I interviewed him quite candidly. And I, I you know I really quizzed him about why he did the challenges and especially with such young children and how could he take those risks that he might not come back. But his answer was very much, he, for him, that's living life. He was pushing boundaries. He was breaking world records. He was doing things for the first time. And and he had the faith that he would come back as well. Yeah. I mean, Ben is a great believer in all of that too. He says, you know, life without a risk is, is no life. And mm. I want to teach the children in our increasingly risk-averse society that it is okay to take risks. And, you know, you might not be lucky, but... It's, it's probably worth the risk. And mm. obviously you've got to quantify your risks and you've got to take the appropriate precautions. But crossing a road is a risk in life. Yeah. Driving to the airport is often more dangerous than the actual flight. And it's sometimes important to have, you know, think about what it gives back to you. And how were your kids when, they, when, when Ben goes away? Um, I think they're very excited. For him, for them, I think he's like a sort of superhero you know, all their friends want to talk to him and he comes and does talks at their school and then he has books and pictures and he took their favourite toys to the top of Everest. They see the exciting part of it. Um, and I think, do you follow the journey while, he, while, while he's gone? Yes, I do. And I do tell them quite a lot and I do have sort of honest conversations. But then I also have sort of weepy moments where I just need to be alone. I'll go for a run and I'll just get all that emotion out and probably not in front of them. Um, because, you know, some of these things are too sophisticated for them to understand. But I think also as they grow up, you know, I'm, I will be more honest with them about my emotions. And I do cry in front of them. And I do sort of admit to them that I'm not always strong and happy. And sometimes I do have a bit of a low day. But I think when they're younger, you probably shield them more mm. from that. Mm. Yeah, I, I had a hormonal moment the other day where I just started crying for no apparent reason whatsoever. And they both looked at me completely shocked. Like, um, you know, what's, why are you crying, mommy? And I actually didn't stop and I just said you know I'm just feeling a bit emotional today yeah. and I think it's something that is really important to show your kids that it's okay to cry because if you're always a rock and don't show your emotions how do they learn that they're that it's they're allowed to show their emotions too well you know people talk about us modeling behavior for our children and essentially they do model all their behavior on us from starting from smiling to talking and eating and politeness and vocabulary but that you know in, I was interestingly talking to um, a psychotherapist uh, Julia Samuel the other week and she was saying how you know when you're grieving it's really important for parents to grieve in a in an open way because you are then modeling good grieving and good control of your not control but embracing of your emotions that your children will then mirror mm. and that of course made complete sense but I was definitely brought up in that stiff upper lip household where you know don't cry and don't be a baby whereas we know crying is is so important mm. it's amazing how it's changed in a generation isn't it that we're sitting there having this conversation I mean I cannot imagine my parents having this conversation and that was 30 years ago mm-hmm. anyway yeah in terms of talking about actually our parents, you know, you, you talk about how, um, you know, your mother was very present mother. She was a stay at home mother and you loved having her around. You obviously lead a very different life. You know, you have many fingers in many pies and are extremely busy. Um, how does that sit with you? Do you I mean, I think all of us feel that guilt that we're just not quite a good enough mother and that I, I slightly wrestle that I'm not present enough for my children, even though I try so hard. Mm. Do you, do you have those struggles? Yeah, definitely. And especially when I first went back to work, I, I did have the guilt that I wasn't 
being the best parent I could be. And as you say, especially because my mum was a stay-at-home mum and she was there for everything. She picked us up from school for every pick-up, drop-off. But I really try to suppress the guilt because I know my husband doesn't feel guilty when he walks out the door Monday to Friday to go to work. And we are getting into a society nowadays where men and women are becoming much more equal in home life, work life. And I want to model that for the kids as well. I think that's really important. I think it's really important they see me working. Mm. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. You're, you're so right that, you know, our, that the men in our lives don't feel guilty. I had this conversation with Iona the other day and she went, Mommy, why do you choose to go to work? Why do you specially choose to spend time away from us when you can? And I was like, Iona, I only work like one or two evenings a week and I'm there whenever I can and I'm so present and I'm, you know... And you never give daddy this, this shit. I'm sorry, it's so unfair. And you do, you talk about kind of yeah. mother guilt, but we don't really talk about dad guilt. Yeah. I mean, I think it is changing. Obviously, a lot more women in our generation are working and, you know, doing really fulfilling, important jobs that, you know, I find working makes me, is a large part of who I am. I'm, I'm more than just their parents. Um, yeah. But it is, I think as long as your kids are happy and healthy, hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what way they're being brought up, whether it's childcare, um, nannies, school, you know, who, who, who's taking care of them as long as they're happy and healthy. And I think if you're fulfilled, they are going to be happier kids because of it. Um, luckily, I think also, you know, men are doing a lot more at home as well. So that does make work-life balance a lot easier. And I, and I think it's really good for my kids to see that Freddie cooks, um, and and he takes them to school and like I'm very lucky I work for a company that's um fully flexible working so I'm not missing out on the nativity play or the sports day which are the things that you would traditionally feel really guilty for missing yeah um so I think if more and more companies could actually look after their employees more and make it easy for people to 
one day a week, two days a week, drop their kids off at school or nursery, go to these important events. Um, Because you can work from anywhere now. You can work from anywhere. And I don't know if you found this, but after having children, when I went back to work, my God, I became efficient. You know, I could get what took me a day to do done in like three hours because I was so focused. And also I really wanted to get home for a certain time. So I wasn't going to have a lunch break. I wasn't going to go and sit and have a long coffee. I was going to get the work I needed to done. And Mm. I think that is the case for many women. They are hyper-efficient after they've had children and that's a brilliant thing to be able to harness as a company presumably yeah definitely and actually men taking paternity leave so more and more men are doing the shared paternity leave and Mm. and and I think it's so important to try and help women to progress within business because if it's just the women that takes the leave it's the men that then progress um we we've got the an equal policy at virgin where if a man wants to take a hundred percent of his leave um so the full 50 weeks full pay he can uh, instead of his wife doing it um and i think if you've just got that equal gender balance it, it, it does make home life much easier we've talked a bit on the podcast about that sort of return to work and sort of expectations of your working life and how they potentially change after you have children i mean i remember with me i when I was pregnant with Ludo, I sort of merrily said to the company I was working for, I'll, I'll take six weeks and I'll be back full time. And <laughs> <laughs> it was only when I was back that I sort of, that I'd had Ludo. I was like, I mean, this is not going to happen. <laughs> Did you have any preconceptions that were sort of, uh, you know, totally dispelled after you'd, you'd had children? I think because I was having two at the same time, I was definitely under the impression I was going to be taking more time off than if I had one um and then when it actually happened I did take nine full months off work uh but looking back on it I don't think that I'd do that again this time because I felt that was too long I'd lost lots of confidence I went back to work feeling and it's a business that it's very much part of my family and I still felt completely um sort of completely out of confidence and 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 I was and it took me a long time to get back into the groove of working again and I don't know whether that's hormonal lack of sleep or it was because it was um actually at nine months went back part-time in a year I went back full-time uh this time we'll see if things change uh but this time I'm planning to go back a bit earlier yeah and but part-time initially part-time initially and when I say earlier I mean I'm I'm aiming for six months and we'll see what happens But I think that lack of confidence, it's so interesting for me to hear your perspective because it's something I talk about on the bump class. And I think people, when they're pregnant, you know, loving their jobs and quite high powered and making a real difference, find that quite hard to believe. But, you know, like you said, you spend six to nine months being a mum and not dressing in the same way and not interacting in the same way and using different vocabulary and using your brain in a different way. I think everyone, whoever they are, will suffer that sort of lack of confidence. And it's really interesting hearing you. I mean, I think a lot of people would have looked at you and thought, well, there's no way Hollywood, that confidence going back into the workplace. And yet, you know, it just shows that mm-hmm. it does affect us all, regardless of, you know, what your role is within the company. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And I also, I do quite a bit of public speaking and having not done that for over a year, that was a huge step back. So I really want to make sure I I keep on doing that as, as much as possible. And what, what, what's quite cool is because of shared parental leave, um, going back to work, I don't, early after this one, I, I don't feel bad about it because Freddie and I are going to share some of the parental leave. 
Um, he's going to do a couple of months with with me at the same time. And I, I think it's great to set that example within the office and with other men that, you know, you know, men can do this too. And it doesn't have to be just the woman that's doing the childcare. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because while, you know, the law says one thing, the expectation is often very, yeah, very different. Yeah, the cultural norm is so different. And even just three years ago, when we had Etranati, when I broached the topic with Freddie, he was like, absolutely not. Um, I can't do that. No, men are doing that. You know, it might affect my career. And you think, you know, it might affect my career too, taking this time out. But it's just amazing. So in just three years, we have quite a lot of examples at Virgin uh, of men that have done this and have really enjoyed taking time out to be a proper dad with their family um, and and I'm so happy that Freddie's agreed to do it this time too. Did you do it last time? No. <laughs> so three years makes all the difference. It does. No, yeah. it really does. No, no. And, and he was absolutely, I'm not doing this mm. last time. Mm. Um, and this time he's fully embracing it and really excited about it. And we're going to do it not quite at the beginning because at the beginning babies do predominantly need their mum especially if you're breastfeeding um whereas a bit later on it can be much easier for the man to get involved and be very much a stay-at-home hands-on dad and so he we're going to wait till about three or four months and then he's going to take his time off then oh great great initiative um so i want to talk a little bit about um your your book um you said um how children have the most ability, uh, most amazing ability to teach adults the true joy of being alive. What have your children taught you in the, in the four they've years? Taught, <laughs> they, they've taught me that I do love sleep. <laughs> um, and um, I don't function very well when I don't get it. Um, no, I, no but really they've, you know, kids, I think having a boy and a girl at the same time because you didn't know you were having a boy I didn't know I was having a boy and a girl and I think having the two of them at exactly the same time has just taught me how you've got to be quite careful about the way you speak to children the words you use Um, when Etta was only two years old Freddie said to her oh Etta you're so clever she said something and he went you're so clever and she went daddy I'm not clever I'm pretty at two and so we suddenly both had to check ourselves and be like, where she got that from? And, you know, we've got to really, really be careful that we're not forming these like, oh, Artie, you're so big and strong and Etta, you're so pretty. Because um, obviously we've been doing that without realising it. Um, so it's just been really interesting watching boys and girls grow up at the same time. Yeah. Um, I mean, your kids are very close together. It must be quite similar for you. Yeah, and it is. And I wrote an article recently about how I, I don't call Iona pretty. I don't use the P word. And it was amazing, the response. And I felt I'd written quite a sort of well-rounded argument justifying why I felt like that. And it wasn't that I was mean or that I didn't think she was pretty. But I just thought I can use so many more constructive and productive adjectives that are not going to kind of perpetuate the idea that essentially she is what she looks like Mm -hmm. you know she's so much more than what she looks like and you know beauty is a social construct that changes from generation to generation I mean from decade to decade it changes and why do we foist this upon women still you know in this enlightened age that we're living in 
But I was amazed, you know, we even went on TV to talk about it. And I was amazed how many people felt that I was cruel. Um, and yet I feel that I am being the kindest mother by saying, you know, praising Iona for her kindness and her, you know, integrity and mm. her tenacity and being brave rather than what I feel that yeah. she looks like. Yeah, it's hard though, because especially other people who aren't having the thought process, um, you know, little girls wear little pretty dresses, especially my daughter is a very girly girl. I was never a girly girl. I was such a tomboy. Um, but she's a she's a very girly girl. And so when she comes down in her pretty dresses, most people say, oh, Etta, that's a pretty dress. And don't you look great? And then Artie comes down in his combat trousers and they're like, oh, you look so cool. You know, there's there's just these cultural norms and society of what you say to children and, and do I, you ever mention that to people I do no I do now because of that comment that Etta made when she was two I really do I really think it's so important that kid, little girls especially don't just think um it's just important if I'm pretty um I just I couldn't believe it no daddy I'm not clever I'm I'm pretty and the book is obviously talking about you know how having a social conscience that goes beyond the kind of norm will sort of positively impact, you know, your business. Translating that into parenting, do you, have you given much thought about, I'm sure you have, about how we can create, you know, a, a, I mean, I, I look at my children, they are incredibly privileged, you know, just considering the fact that they have a roof over their head and there's mm. always food on their plate. How do we make sure that our children you know, emerge as aware of how lucky they are and aware that they aren't, you know, most of the children in the world aren't like that. And also, interestingly, reading, I'm reading a Michelle Obama's autobiography mm, at the moment. <laughs> um, and, you know, she very much had, right from the beginning, this urge that you know, she just didn't want to be a corporate lawyer. She wanted to be something more than that. How do we, inst I would love to instill that in my children. Mm. I, how do we do that? What well, are your tips? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it's all a learning process. But I think for for all children, no matter what background you're brought up in, I think all kids have to have the realisation that they can make a difference in the world. And it's been interesting recently, the kids have just done a, a project at school on, on the environment and they've been so fascinated by it. You know, plastic waste, climate change, um, making sure you turn off the lights at home. And I think if we can all try and get kids interested in those really important topics from a very young age, and in a fun way, it doesn't have to be, let's sit down and learn this, it's in a really fun way. Um, I think it's in a really important. And, and getting out into your local community, um, um, making sure they understand the concept of giving back. As soon as I read a great article about pocket money, and um, we're not quite there yet, but as soon as we are, um, I'm definitely going to be doing this. Um, it was uh, someone who said you should always make your pocket money divisible by three. Give your kids three jars. One is save. So they put one of the 20 P's in save. One is spend and they can do whatever they want with it. Let's say you're giving them 60 P, put the other 20 P in spend and the other is giveaway. And so they get to choose when it gets to a certain amount of money any charity or any cause that they feel really strongly about that they can give it away. And I thought that was a really good way of getting kids to understand the concept of saving and giving back, but also had the fun bit about 
letting them go and buy their kinder egg if they want to as well yeah no that makes such sense because I, I slightly struggle my children don't really spend any of their pocket money so it accumulates and and also toys are really expensive these days but I did say to Ben the other day I, like, I think our children have way too much pocket money and then he googled what the national average was and it was actually below the national average but it just still feels really mm. uncomfortable that you know they have all this money and they don't really think about it so actually that's a brilliant it's idea. a really nice I really really loved it I thought it was a really nice concept um, and there's just also, I think it's just making these topics really fun and interesting for them. Going to the science museum and learning things there. And mm. there's, there's so many free museums and free events that happen in towns and cities. And, and just trying to look them up and f- find fun ways on weekends to, to, to go about doing it. Um, there's schools now that are taking kids down the Thames to pick up rubbish. Mm there's there's other things there's one actually that we support a big change called um 50 things to do before you're five and because sometimes it's quite hard to come up with these concepts I mean I'm not creative at all so I I spend a lot of time googling about you know (laughs) what things can I do this weekend that are about plastic waste um and fortunately google is it is amazing and it pops (laughs) up with the answers normally and so but there's this um there's this charity called 50 things to do before you're five and it gives you great examples of what things to do with your kids to to just enlighten them yeah because they've got to care you know I think that's the important thing I think if we force them to sort of give to charity we want to get them to want to do it um, mm. and so sort of I, I suggested to my children's school who have a sort of charity there should almost be like an x factor for the charity you know that the children different groups of children should select a charity and then try and persuade each other why this should be their charity of the year and then that kind of combines the research and the passion and then also a bit of sort of public speaking but then also that drive that you know it's not just giving the money that you're given but thinking right well how can I generate more money you know am I going to make lemonade and then mm. I can give the profits of the lemon or half the profits of the lemonade or whatever it is to, to the charity and, and yeah. that sort of feels like it's me being better slightly better parent and enforcing I mean the power of instilling these things young is tremendous and I, I remember so well being taught about sort of you don't drop litter in the street and you know I would you know I wouldn't drop litter in the street in the same way that I wouldn't kick a dog you know it, it's so against and yet you see people do that and mm. and that sort of and I think it's so great that our children are so engaged with the environment um, because that hopefully will make all the difference because quite frankly our generation aren't brilliant no and hopefully there'll be the push for the future to try and push businesses to to decrease their plastic pollution which is which is a great thing that's happening at the moment and all down to David Attenborough and his program because it's been talked about for ages but then when that blue planet came out there was that real sea change, mm. um, pardon the pun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there was that, yeah, real sea change of of people really understanding that this is a massive problem, uh, and it was really pushed by young people. Mm, absolutely, and you look at a lot of the companies that are engaging with young people. You know, look at Innocent Smoothies, for example. You look at the their packaging, and it's all about sort of recycling. I was reading one the other day saying, you know, this is going to be turned into a, your you know your carton is 100% recyclable and it will reinvent itself as a loo roll holder and I think it's really interesting that those companies that are specifically engaging with younger people are very often the ones that have been the first to take on this challenge and you know the the most vociferous about it Mm. yeah and I think it's um, helping your kids find their cause because it might not be your cause it might not be the thing that you're passionate about and I think you've really got to help them 
to find the things that they're passionate about and then they're most likely to make the biggest difference. And is this a conversation you've had with your children about finding their, or are they just a bit they're, young? They're just that little bit too young, but it, I, I do love the fact that they, at the moment, it's the environment and plastic and they they really are. And if we leave the lights on, they're telling us to turn the lights off. Um, so they're actually now teaching us, um, you know, they're, they're forcing us to be better people as well at three. And philanthropy is obviously a big part of what you and your family do. Was it always a narrative within your family, um, you know, choosing a charity, this sort of division of the pocket money? Was this always something you had talked about? Or? No, the, the division of the pocket money was something, that's just something I've read about recently. Um, but the giving back was always something that was very much ingrained in, in what we do. It wasn't a formalized chat, like a dinner table conversation, but I, we just sort of, as you you just learn from your parents and what they do. Um, it was a lot of making sure, you, when I was little, I would always notice my dad would give to the big issue sellers and buy, get one of the, the big issue um, papers and he'd always make sure um, he was giving presents to hospitals at Christmas time. Um, I do remember when I had a, a big birthday party when I was sort of four years old, um, I got ridiculous amounts of presents. When you have a big party, everyone brings a present and it was sort of choosing which presents were going to go to charity and which ones I was going to keep. So it did start very young. And so I'm, I'm trying to do that with the kids now. It's so hard to get them to give away their, their toys. But I think if you explain it in a, in a way about people just not having as much as them and how it's really important to share and give things and really how giving is way better than receiving and you realize that when you're older but you just need to think about it in a certain way I know I had this thought you know that Ludo should give a certain amount of his presents away but I also said it can't be your worst presents kind of should be your favorite presents because you're giving to people that have so much less than you and I was like god is that just too mean Mm. to say who to a little sensitive boy who you know anyway it was a difficult conversation it's very difficult because it's also difficult because people have thought about what gifts they're giving him so they've spent the time thinking well you know what's he gonna like Mm -hmm. and then if they then found out you've just given it on Mm -hmm. so I'm I'm the same I've I've had these similar thoughts a lot um but I think doing ones where they've grown out of them is a bit more understandable yeah absolutely you're gonna do that his his birthday um I think we'll definitely do one or two and I think as they get older you know I think it's very difficult to have that conversation with a four-year-old but actually with a nine-year-old I think actually that they they have realized that giving like the excitement of finding a great present for someone you love is so much more rewarding than whatever you're given I think they have they are starting to realize and to give something to someone and you know it's going to make a big difference feels so good and I think they're starting to feel that mm. but you know I also don't want them to resent me and feel that I'm captain no fun and you know and would you go with them to wherever you're going to give the presents to that we'd get them to go with you yeah yeah absolutely because then that's yeah, part that's of all the understanding isn't yeah it? exactly so yeah. You have started a charity, Big Change. Um, tell me a bit about what the ambitions for the charity is and, and what, what it does. So five years ago, we set up Big Change because um, we wanted to really rethink the education system in the UK specifically. Um, we, back big, we back sort of big ideas and great people 
um, who are doing wonderful things and we, we partner with them financially and also by convening other people in the same area. Uh, we call ourselves a social impact accelerator. So we back really early stage ideas that most other people don't want to take the risk on yet. And we've had s- such a great outcome. So it's ideas that um, are helping kids thrive in life and not just exams. I feel like the education system at the moment, especially in the state system, it's all about your Ofsted reports, your end of year grades, um, where your school is on the league tables. And it's, so it's really just pushing these kids to worry. Every year they have to worry about their exam results. And and it means the teachers, that's what they're worrying about. So they're not actually focusing on the proper life skills that kids need, like grit and resilience and um, determination and, and failure it's 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 all about what grades can you get and where are our school going to be in the, like on the league tables so we've spent five years partnering great projects um that have really helped kids thrive um and now we're focusing um another part of the charity on reimagining education and how we can make education perfect for the 21st century um because parrot fashion regurgitation is not necessary anymore computers can do that for us but that seems to be what the school system is just set up to do teach kids to remember something and then spit it back back out again and not think and not themselves. think no exactly um I, I, there was a great research study done recently on uh a-level a students who all got straight a's and then they got them to retake the a-levels three months later and 70% of them got D's. Because they'd forgotten the immediate forgotten. information. Mm. Um, and what use is that in life? Mm. So we're now pulling together and convening the, the top brains in education um, from across the globe to really rethink how we can do education better. Mm. And, you know, there are, I, I, as I see my children mature, I realise that there are some children that are really good at exams and find them really easy and some children that aren't and mm. one group is not necessarily brighter than the other and actually the ones that pass the exams you know I was what I wasn't lucky enough to be um good at exams and so I ended up doing well and ended up at university my brother on the other hand was just not interested in exams but I would say he's brighter than me mm. and your father's dyslexic isn't he my dad's dyslexic yeah and he he was not good at exams either he left school at 15 and look at where he is now. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it is so interesting. Ben's um, book about right, uh, uh, climbing Everest is much more than just the mission to the top. It's about a reflection on his life, and he was exactly that child. He got you know D E N, I think, in his A levels, um, and on paper he was told you're going to be a failure in life. You're you're you know you're not spelling's not good enough. Your writing's not good enough. You're aptitude when it comes to maths is terrible and yet what he realized when he got a little bit more confidence was that the you know well there's a much bigger and broader place than a levels mm. but so much is the confidence in that belief that I, my school has identified me as a loser my school has identified me as a failure so that's what i'm going to be i'm going to be pigeonholed by this education system and but what's sad is it's still happening now mm. it hasn't changed school is all about how you do in exams and it absolutely shouldn't be. 
And so what are the, the sort of projects and the outcomes that you have, have funded? Can you, can you give me an example of... of- yep, so um, we have funded a project that came out of a school called School 21, uh, which is an amazing state school in East London, um, which was set up and run by a great guy called Ed Fido. And he had an idea that oracy speaking skills should be just as important as written skills. All of our exams, apart from some of the languages, are all done by writing, but life is all about speaking. So he has come up with an oracy curriculum and it's now started and tested in his school, but has now been spread across thousands of schools across the UK. And he's really lobbying that many more of the exams, if we're gonna stick with the exam system, uh, should be actually oral. Um, there's a horrific stat that in state schools, uh, in some state schools, um, kids speak on average three to four words in a lesson. And it's all about the teacher just standing at the front and shoveling information into the heads of the young people. And they don't actually get to sit there and discuss and because there isn't time. Um, so his oracy curriculum has been absolutely phenomenal. Um, another project we funded was one called Frontline, which... Uh, was an idea at the time and it was about it's um, getting really highly qualified people to become social workers being a social worker doesn't have the kudos uh, that it should do it's such an important role and so he started a guy we know started something uh, to do what teach first did for teaching for social work um, and that was that was an amazing. We we gave them uh, a bit of money and lots of convening power at the beginning, and they went on to get multi million pound funding from the government, and it's now a national project. So it's just taking these people with great ideas and giving them the sort of support they need at the beginning to then go on to make a big difference. Yeah, and giving them a voice, yeah. you know, because so often you have this great idea and you lack the confidence and sort of thinking I or you know the ease in which to make it kind of national mm. but the oracy thing it makes total sense you know the majority of our life is about one-to-one communication I'm a big believer that communicating with my children is the best skill I can give them teaching them to look in the eye and to be able to say I'm sorry or I'm sad or I'm vulnerable or whatever it mm. is that is way more important than times tables because quite frankly I've forgotten them all yeah I've been relearning them since I've been teaching to my children <laughs> I'm like six sevens oh god I, I can't remember <laughs> and yet we attach so much importance to them yeah 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 then the other areas that we're really focusing on at the moment are teacher well-being teacher burnout is huge and you put all this time and effort into um, to training up teachers and then a lot of them, I think it's something like two thirds of them are leaving within five years because the profession is just so difficult and there's not enough support. So making sure that teachers have the support and getting, because schools don't have HR departments and the teachers are the most important bits of a school. Yeah, we're just trying to focus on the areas that are really needed Um, within the education system and giving them as much support as we can. Holly, it's been so great to chat to you. I have really, really enjoyed it. Holly's book, Economy, is available from Amazon and all the good bookshops. If you want to hear more about Big Change, go to big-change.org and you can follow Holly on Instagram at holly underscore Branson.
Thank you for downloading another episode of The Parenthood. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us. These three clicks make a huge difference to how easily people can find us. But in the meantime, from Holly and me, thanks for listening and goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.